You are listening to Studying Pixels, a hyper-masculine podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. It is Pride Month, so please celebrate who you are and who you desire. And please do not discriminate against people because of who they are or who they desire. Yes, happy Pride Month to everyone. I'm very excited to talk hypermasculinity. I've got my protein powder and my dumbbells next to me. I uh, <laughs> I, I was going to joke that I have a big mustache, but I do have a big mustache. You do. I, your, your mustache is amazing. <laughs> oh, I guess ironically, I have I have a big mustache today. So. And actually, I'm trying out some protein powder. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, here we go. Well, actually, that might be appropriate because I think hypermasculinity is often decried, I suppose, or it's it's made out to be this kind of, you know, we use the phrase toxic masculinity. But we're going to get into some examples today where, you know, what, masculinity can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah. And I think that's why I like the term hypermasculinity a bit more than the term toxic masculinity. Well, from an academic perspective, I should say. Because both of these terms, they mean very similar things, but the toxic masculinity has a certain normative assessment inscribed sure. so that it is more closely tied to the negative effects, the repercussions that it would have to the social environment. Whereas hypermasculinity seems a little bit more descriptive to me, which is why the term I find a little bit more apt for an academic analysis. Hypermasculinity is very well worth criticism, and that's what we're doing today as well. We're going to talk about what hypermasculinity is, how it is portrayed in video games, and of course, then how it is subverted. But before we do that, we want to briefly remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can join Studying Pixels Plus, where you will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free, a lovely sticker, and monthly Plus episodes. This month, we have a Plus episode titled How to Survive a Conference. And we exchanged many tips in that Plus episode, and I thought of one extra tip that we hadn't mentioned there, for a good reason, and I will explain in a second, came to mind, which is the problem of forgetting names. It <laughs> happens to me yes. all the time. You know that when you meet someone new and you introduce yourself to each other and then you immediately forget their name. Yes. It's a terrible feeling. You're like, ah, and uh, who are you again? I'm trying to avoid this by a simple trick. I repeat the name of the other person. So if you, Dan, would introduce yourself to me, then you would say... Uh, hi, I'm Dan. And I would say, hi, I'm Stefan. Nice to meet you, Dan. Yes. Something like that. I just repeat the name of the person once after I learn it for the first time. And I do it again at the end of this very first interaction. When Dan would then want to leave and leave the room, then I would say, okay, enjoy the rest of your day, Dan. Just so that it stays a little bit more ingrained in my brain. It also makes the other person feel really nice, too. I, I think that it's it's a very small thing, but it does, people notice it because it's their name. It's very important to them. Yeah. The name is such a personal thing. Oh, I mean, yeah. Addressing someone by their name is a great way to just have a slight more nudge in the direction of some bonding, I feel. I will say this too. You meet so many people. I'm going to 
give a, tr uh, a tip and a trick out of our friend Gordon Ramsay's book, which is instead of saying nice to meet you, always say it's so good to see you. Because if you have met them, you cover your bases. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. But we've met before. Uh, have we? Well, where was that? And then they start explaining and it's like, and what's your name again? And well, yeah. it was good meeting you then. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, I suppose it must have been a nice time because I completely forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, that's, those are the kinds of conversation that you can expect from Studying Pixels Plus. So if you're curious about it, then go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we are back talking about subverting hypermasculinity in video games. Now, before we dive into what hypermasculinity is, we have to apply one disclaimer, one limitation up top here. Because in order to subvert hypermasculinity, it must, to some degree, be part of the game. Otherwise, there's no way to subvert it. So, in this episode, we're not going to go into the broad range of queer games and indie games that construct queer identities because that would not be a subversion of hypermasculinity as such. We're looking at more like bigger, well-known titles that feature hypermasculinity in one or another prominent way and then go into a completely different direction to catch you off guard. But first, what is hypermasculinity? The term was coined by Donald L. Mosher and Mark Serkin in a 1984 study, and it's also called the macho personality. They attribute three, well, attributes, key attributes to hypermasculinity. And those are, first, a callous sexual attitude towards women. Number two, the belief that violence is manly. And number three, the experience of danger as exciting. These are the three attributes. Callous sexual attitude towards women, the belief that violence is manly, and the experience of danger as exciting. Now, already, bells are ringing when you look at a lot of forms of, of media. And of course, this form of hypermasculinity is basically, if you imagine gender to be a spectrum between male and female, if we want to just use the spectrum of those two opposing poles, then it's all the way on the male spectrum, on the far end of the male spectrum, which can have very detrimental consequences for people, for many people, actually, for women, of course, 
because it entails a logical objectification of women. Women are basically sexual objects. They are reduced to their sexuality. But also in general, they ought not to have any kind of dominant role or any kind of autonomy. Their expectation is basically to submit to a male person because that is the reason for their existence. Hypermasculinity always needs a submissive female role in order to reaffirm itself. Yes, they're relegated to, if we want to use video game terms, which we're going to come back to in a minute, they're the princess in the castle. They're the object to be saved. And they're not really a person or character on the board at that point. So you could maybe think, well, then it's pretty clear that hypermasculinity is particularly harmful to mm. women. And it is. It definitely is. But it also is harmful to men because it imposes a certain role expectation, a certain stereotype on how men should behave, how they should feel, what they should do. They should be strong. They should not show any emotions, ideally. They should be protective of a woman, whether she wants to be protected or not, and they should be sexually potent. They should be active. And the, the harmful thing, I think, to men in this case is that if you, even if you just look at the three attributes that you just described, the callousness towards women, the belief that violence is manly, and and that danger is exciting. This sort of action movie hero aesthetic. I think that if you find yourself saying, well, I don't want to be callous towards women. I, women are my friends and I like them. And I, I don't like violence and I'm actually kind of an indoor person. <laughs> then you have this feeling that, well, maybe I'm not a man. And that can be detrimental to your own identity as a man too. It can be detrimental to your identity and it can make your school life horrible. Absolutely it can. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. are we both speaking from experience? In this case? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> because hypermasculinity is a strong driving factor behind bullying. It is kind of this idea that there are like these alpha men yeah. or these alpha boys in that sense. They have to exert their dominance and they have to put other men down, considered to be inferior, considered to be beta. You know, yeah. as people say nowadays, which is also an animalistic terminology, right? Uh, to put them down in order to reaffirm their own superiority. And that is kind of, it's a very fragile position to be in that often leads towards violence. Well, and it always, it always goes back to hierarchies too, because if you, if you're measuring your self-worth by how you compare to other men who you think are inferior to you or superior to you, then your entire worldview falls apart when you try to help someone. <laughs> So, yeah. It's not a very good way to live your life. Exactly. That's the interesting thing. Hypermasculinity is really an overcompensation of being very fragile. Just as an example, or yeah, just as an example, maybe if you have such a crumbling sense of identity that if someone suspects that you might be gay is the, the reason for an existential crisis, then your masculinity is very fragile yeah. because you don't have like a formed identity and many people would maybe just, you know, not care. And it is very troubling if you are so scared of being considered gay that you, it must be avoided at all costs. That's why people say like, oh, no homo. No homo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Like, what do you say? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, man, they said that in school all the time and it's just like, well, what if, what if, what if it is yes homo? Like, what's the problem with this? <laughs> but it's true. I, I think that if you if you scratch the surface of men who purport themselves to be hypermasculine in these ways that we've described, you'll find that uh, there's not a whole lot underneath it. And that's sad because you don't want anyone to go through life 
feeling like they're less than, but that's exactly what this leads to. Yeah, it makes people, it can easily push people to the brink. It can easily cause violence. And it's a very troubling social phenomenon. It is works in similar ways, such as the idea of, you know, white fragility, where whenever, where you need as a white person, the kind of idea that your whiteness is, uh, has, is of no significance. And basically, whenever you're questioned, and whenever it, there is the idea that you might have a certain privilege, that people just immediately get very upset and very defensive about it. It's a similar logic that applies in the case of hypermasculinity. You yeah. must, at all costs, protect that masculinity because it's a crucial part that you have made a crucial part of your identity. It's also due to socialization, of course. I'm I'm saying like you made it a part of that, but of course it's also a part of how you're being brought up, your peer group in which you are, but also the media that socializes you, all of these factors come into play. I'm reminded of um, whenever I see what I, what I determine to be healthy male relationships in TV or movies or video games, it's an interesting thing happens where if two men are friendly and they, they care about each other and they love each other, it's immediately assumed that they're gay. And it's, of course, fine if they are, but it's also beautiful if they're not <laughs> because it's this deep relationship. And I just remember the phrase similar to no homo, fellows, fellas, is it gay to have friends? You know, <laughs> this idea of like maybe... Maybe we can all just be people and, you know, have empathy for one another and not have to construct these deeply disturbing personas for ourselves. Exactly. Because the third group that is very harmed by hypermasculinity, the first one being women, the second one being other men, the third one is the people themselves yeah. that construct the masculinity in that way, it can lead up to such things like suicide. Because statistically, men that very strongly emphasize their masculinity, that kind of subscribe to this idea of hypermasculinity, think they are not, that they shouldn't show any emotion, that having emotions or talking about emotions is a sign of weakness. And that's why they are less inclined to seek help when they really need it. At the same time, they are more vulnerable for being hurt in narcissistic ways because they might say like, you know, my role is to protect the woman, but if they are being left by their partner, for example, then it's very painful to them. Just like for many people, it is very painful, of course. And then not being willing to talk about this because it would show that you're weak. That often can be very detrimental to people's well-being. And that's why it is in everyone's interest, really, to work against hypermasculinity. I often think how, how much, <laughs> we probably wouldn't have gotten his books, but how much happier would Ernest Hemingway have been? <laughs> If he had just lightened up a little bit, that poor man. But but that's how I feel is at the end, when you look at these examples, I think you do, after you examine them for a while, you, you, your thought is, oh, that poor man, right? <laughs> it's, it's a sad state of affairs, this hypermasculinity. Yeah. You can't just simply say it's a culprit or it's a victim. It's kind of both. Feeds into each other too feeds into each other. It's often in the gray area. And we currently are actually experiencing quite a resurgence of hypermasculinity fueled by the political leaders of the world and by the, well, let's say, performances of high-ranking politicians. If we only think about Donald Trump, who's, well, no longer in office, much against what some people might may believe. <laughs> <laughs> but Donald Trump really is an embodiment of hypermasculinity. He defined his persona as basically being the super successful dude. It was always like super important to him that he seemed physically healthy. Like, no, 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 the doctor, I'm perfectly healthy. No checks, I need to know. One, one see. pound under <laughs> obese, remember that? 
Yeah. <laughs> I've got a perfect body weight. I'm strong. Past. And the thing is, he his identity was crucially built on the fact that, and I'm not going to repeat the face, but grab him by the oh, yeah. dude. Yeah. And by this idea of like, I can have any woman that I want, all the women, they just want me. And so I can basically do whatever I want. Uh, this is something that is really common. You can see it at the other end of the world happening with Vladimir Putin, who also has been for a long time now constructing an image of hypermasculinity by riding on a horse without a shirt on through a lake, which is okay, you can do that, but he deliberately emplaced such a thing as a performance so that people would see like, oh wow, he's this like, you know, KGB agent, this former KGB agent, he's like physically capable, he's strong, and it's a sincere threat to his identity when suspicion arises that he might have cancer. Yes. Oh. Because that's a form of weakness. That's a form of weakness that cannot be admitted within the framework of hypermasculinity. Well, it's all smoke and mirrors. And I, I don't have a whole lot of empathy or sympathy for either of these men that we're talking about for multiple reasons. But you do, you do have the thought, my God, what an exhausting life that must be to erect that image of yourself every day and to have this deep insecurity when anybody even comes close to questioning it. Despite Donald Trump being, by all accounts, a very effete kind of, you know, He's he's not he's not very masculine Donald Trump by traditional standards and yet it is so important that he comes off that way and it's uh yeah, it just seems exhausting to me to live that way. It must be really exhausting always keeping up that kind of facade. Mm. Well, and what that facade might look like is often portrayed in a plethora of ways in the media. We've mm. alluded to that a couple of times already. Of course, there are very prominent examples throughout the entirety of popular culture. My first thought were these four people. The Terminator, <laughs> Rocky, James Bond, and John Wick. Yeah, those are those are good ones. And I, when you say those names, I think, okay, tall, buff, tough fighters. They're killing people left and right, some of them, <laughs> particularly Wick. And they're, they're just, I think the other thing is cool, you know, that idea of, yeah. boy, they're cool. Yeah, calm in the face of adversity, precise in the exertion of their violence. <laughs> Walking away from explosions. <laughs> Walking away from in slow motion. Yep. While basically, while rescuing a woman as, oh, they, yeah. as they jump through the fire. <laughs> and then the woman obviously immediately needs to have sex. Of course. With that kind of testosterone package. Yes. What, what do we have James Bond for, if not that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not quite sure about John Wick. I've seen all the films, and I think John Wick is a little bit more progressive in many ways. It's also a lot newer. Uh, that's why I don't want to be too strict on, on John Wick, but it definitely is a, let's say, contemporary update on the hypermasculine uh, profile. I think what's, what's interesting about him is that he goes a little bit into the subversion that we're going to be talking about. So, it, but the important thing is that when you think of him, that is your first thought, the hypermasculinity. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, games are, of course, no exception. I mean, these were all kind of very tied to movies now, but we've got a whole lot of examples from video games. I think especially in the 90s and in the 2000s, hypermasculinity was so established within video game discourse that it was basically the standard. It was just the norm. It, when you purchased a video game, it was the default situation that you would have a shotgun bro on the cover. Yeah. Even the infamously bad American Mega Man artwork depicts little cute Mega Man as this buff guy with a gun. <laughs> and he's, he's 
running through and killing robots, so you couldn't get away from it even when it didn't apply. <laughs> well, the classic example is, of course, the Doom guy. Oh, yeah. The Doom guy who, almost like in a biblical sense, <laughs> which is it obviously a deliberate analogy, is you can see his muscles. And I think with the Doom guy, if I recall correctly, while he's like shooting at these demons, and it's like a drawn image that's on the cover, yeah. you can see that his space suit, which he would wear because he's, I think, on Mars, is like ripped, and you can see like how shredded his abs are yeah underneath despite despite being a like a space marine it's it, we have that little bit of protection taken away so that you can understand just how shredded the doom guy is yes <laughs> and we can talk about female body images for a long time as well of course but we're focusing here on male body images because the body image is a crucial part of hyper masculinity and it includes obviously muscles you said they must be buff they must be kratos basically they yeah. must be strong they must have beard yep muscles tattoos yeah and some big weapon some some comically large weapon <laughs> yes that that no human being could reasonably wield yes which is an extension of course of the idea of being potent yes right yeah because i'm not going to go all the way down the road of psychoanalysis of arguing that it's a phallic symbol, although I legitimately could probably do that. Yeah, I think I think our friend Ziggy would have a lot to say about, <laughs> about a lot of these video game characters. It is, however, even if you don't want to subscribe to the idea that a gun is necessarily a phallic symbol, even if we look beyond that, it is an extension of potency. Of potency not necessarily in a sexual sense, but of course in a sense of I have power over my environment. I am strong. I can defend myself. I can kill others if I want to. Basically, the world is at my fingertips. It's a kind of exertion of dominance symbolized by a firearm. Yes. And I think that it's it's definitely supposed to be shorthand for, as you say, dominance and also that kind of like the, the powerful virility that this person is capable of anything. Exactly. And you know what I found the, one of the most annoying hypermasculine characters? It's Aiden Pierce from Watch Dogs. Oh, man. <laughs> he was so annoying. He was so particularly annoying because he did not have to be hypermasculine. No. It that's... was completely unnecessary in this game. It's Watch Dogs is a game about hackers. It's yeah. about hacking, about a dude who can hack the traffic lights in order to get rid of the police or something like that. Or drive up a ramp so he can jump over. So he's a cool guy. I get that. He is not particularly buffed. Fair enough. But his entire demeanor is this typical... Yeah, I'm gonna get... That he constantly... <laughs> like the grumbling. He constantly speaks in this voice. And you yeah. think, like, come on. I, in my review, I only called him Hard Joe. <laughs> uh that's probably that's more memorable than than watchdogs to me but yeah you're you're right that's a perfect character to not do that to because of his skill set and it's it's kind of baffling that they feel the need to implement that despite really i mean he's a he's <laughs> i was gonna say he has soft skills not in like a conversational sense but <laughs> in the sense that he's not running around and you know ripping people's throats out it's not his character. Yeah, it wouldn't have had to been that way. But Ubisoft, yeah. Ubisoft, you, you decided and you said, no, we need a super hyper-masculine character in order for our target audiences to identify. Because that's, of course, 
the idea behind it. And that's also the reason why in the 90s and 2000s, when video games basically became an integral part of the private home of people, where the marketing department really focused on male teenagers, that is the kind of target audience that you then want to reach. So you design your characters in accordance to what you think those teenagers want to be like. And that in return, and this is the kind of vicious circle that happens, that in return means that they want to be more like these characters because that's primarily what they see in the games that they play. And that can be a profound problem. It can, especially when there's no diversity in that sense, because I, I imagine it was the same problem with 80s action movies where all the heroes were people like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and just these nearly unattainable physiques that, I mean, it would it would make you feel small, literally, if you didn't live up to it. So I can't be Doom guy. I don't know. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> just every interaction that's possible is just punching or shooting. It's like, yeah. Instead right. of pressing a button, you just hammer the button into the entire machine. <laughs> Although I, and maybe we can, maybe we can put a pin in Doom Guy because his motivation is, I would say, despite his reaction being hypermasculine, his motivation is rather, rather kind. It is kind. It is yeah. very cute. Shall we briefly talk about the Doom Guy in that sense? Yeah, his poor rabbit. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I think, was it Satan who killed his rabbit? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He comes back home and it's like ritually dissected or something like that so yeah doom guys doom guys motivation against all these demons is that they killed his rabbit which is kind of sweet in a way doom guy actually has a great uh, motivation of care as well because he's not fighting i mean he's fighting for his own revenge surely that's part of the law but part of the story of each game is usually to stop this kind of demon uprising now the doom guy is totally hypermasculine, but he's hypermasculine to a degree that it is comical in itself. And that already goes into the direction, I would say, of being a form of subversion. Mm. A good segue into our into our subversive narratives here, because that's also an example, I think, where time was on Doom's side in the sense that I think it did start out as a genuinely hypermasculine depiction of somebody. But then as the sequels came out and more was it was it was played up to be more playful, particularly the the last two Doom games. Like I just have the image of Doom guy picking up his little Funko Pop figure and fist bumping it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very silly. So it, it kind of folded in on itself a little bit. Yeah, it became a lot more self-referential, a lot more yeah. meta, and a lot more comical. I've never, like, w when I play Doom, I often find it an almost comical experience. And uh, <laughs> actually super engaging and interesting, a lot more engaging and interesting than people might think if they only see, like, two minutes of gameplay. And it's like, oh my god, this is yeah. atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> But before we go into all the details of the potential subversion of hypermasculinity, we'll have to take a short break and we'll be right back. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we are back talking about some video games that effectively subvert hypermasculinity. And one of the first ones that I needed to think of is part of a very established series. It is Super Mario Odyssey. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Here we go! The Super Mario series in general, I think, is one of the most founding, one of the most principled representations of hypermasculinity. It's it's funny because it doesn't come to mind right away because you think about Mario and you think, well, he's not, I don't know that he's, he's not the Doom guy. <laughs> no, he's like, he's got more like a dad bod, I would say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He doesn't fit the profile of uh, the body image of hypermasculinity, but it does definitely play into this idea of the male being the hero. It plays into the idea of a male subjectivity that has to, as you mentioned earlier, save the princess. And the princess, yeah. crucially here, is to objectified, not sexually objectified necessarily, but objectified to the degree that she's basically just the trophy. She's just the ball in a game between Mario and Bowser. Yes, she's object objectified in the sense that, in this case, she's made into an objective. She's It's just go find her and, and rescue her. Yes, the princess is in another castle. Yes. However, this changed over time, I think most poignantly so with Super Mario Odyssey, if we exclude such games where, obviously, there's like one game where Peach is the main character... Um, but if we just go with the mainline Mario series, then Super Mario Odyssey has an interesting development. And this is, of course, it's a spoiler, but is that that's not something that it would say like, oh, I wouldn't play Super Mario Odyssey now, so don't worry about it. It's perfectly fine. It's not a big secret or a thing that profoundly shifts your perspective on the game to hear that at the very end of Super Mario Odyssey, Peach rejects Bowser as much as she rejects Mario, and she goes off on an adventure of her own. This is, of yeah, course, a painful injury to Mario, who always tried to save the princess, and who thought, like, oh, wow, I need to save that princess. And then eventually he's like, oh, you can marry me now. And she's like, oh, you know. Nah. Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think you're missing the point here, Mario. I appreciate yeah. the compliment, Mario, but <laughs> I think I, I'll, I'll go. What, what I like about, about it is that it's... It's not played as hurtful to Mario. It's played as a joke because it's it's like, well, did did either of you ask <laughs> about this? Because obviously Bowser didn't, but the kind of twist that like, well, Mario isn't either. He's just kind of playing in this 
as you said, this ball game between him and Bowser. And so when Peach walks away at the end of that game and kind of turns her nose at both of them, it's really funny in a way that I don't know if you felt this, but I think another way that the Mario games in general kind of subvert this trope is that there is since maybe Super Mario Brothers 3, when it was set up that that game is kind of like a play and these are actors that are kind of putting on this show for people. There's this idea that it's, the stakes are never so high that you feel like anyone's in danger. And so it is kind of tongue in cheek at the end where Peach walks away and says, no, I, listen, you, you two figure yourselves out. I'm going to go have my own fun. <laughs> it fits very much with the series to, yeah. that they did that. And it is also like Mario is in many ways a very cute character. I think that the Super Mario series has done its part in shaping the idea of hypermasculinity in video game culture, but it has also, and this is something that did surprise me, admittedly, at the hands of Nintendo, has taken quite some shifts and turns in order to comment on it, be witty about it, make a joke out of it. There's a more conscious engagement with this kind of idea. There are even titles such as Braid by Jonathan Blow, which is an indie game. It's one of these like really high profile indie games where you play a character, you play a young man who goes through levels like a, it's a jump and run game by manipulating the time mechanics, presuming that your goal is to save the princess, right? Or to rescue a lady. Yeah. However, as it turns out, eventually, and I think it's also okay to mention this since this game is quite old and very well known at this point, it turns out that she's actually running away from you and you are the, a kind of stalker. You're kind of obsessed in your hypermasculinity that this woman must want you and therefore stalk her, which is a very serious phenomenon. We haven't talked about like, you know, how stalking as a very real and serious issue is tied to hypermasculinity, but of course it is. Well, talk about a punch to the gut. When that's sort of revealed to you in Braid, I think not only is it a, a really kind of smart commentary on Mario, like we're talking about, but it's also, I think it puts into perspective what chasing a woman really is. And I think what's interesting is that there's no distinction between that character and a stalker. And he believes he's just chasing this trophy that he's owed. And what else is a stalker doing, really? So... Is that what every game about saving a girl is about on its surface? I don't know. I think you can argue no. But it's a really smart way to look at that because there is something creepy about running after a girl when Peach walks away off, <laughs> away from you on the moon at the end of the game. You know, that's her own yeah. choice. So these are basically two completely different ways how to deconstruct this hypermasculine trope of the man must rescue the woman. In Super Mario Odyssey, it's very comedic. In Braid, it is very much a gut punch. Yeah. Which also made it so famous. There's also another title, by the way, that comes to mind that does a similar thing, which is Monkey Island. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the first Monkey Island, right? Where you are uh, Guybrush Threepwood. You want to become a pirate and you want to obviously get the girl. Her name is, what's her name? El Elena? Eleanor? I can't remember. I, I'm, I'm always too stuck on Guybrush Threepwood. <laughs> Guybrush <laughs> Threepwood. The name I remember. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember her name either. But the thing is, he believes that he has to save said lady from the evil pirate, whoever his name is. Yeah. I almost It's almost right there, the name of that evil pirate. <clears throat> ah, LeChuck. Yes. Oh, yeah, LeChuck. That. 
Yeah, Le yeah. I can, okay, I can see him now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, that was the thing. I had his, I had the image of yeah, him in my mind. Face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. LeChuck, the evil LeChuck. pirate, has kidnapped the woman. And Guybrush Threepwood believes that he has to save her. So he goes after them. And all he does is just ruin her plan of escape. She has, like, everything laid out. And then she's just like, Guybrush, what are you doing here? You're ruining my plan. <laughs> he bungles it. Well, it reminds me, it's funny, too, the the LucasArts connection there because that's exactly Princess Leia in the first Star Wars movie when she, <laughs> Luke and Han come to save her and she's the one doing all the saving. You know, <laughs> all right, well, this your pla- you have no plan. This sucks. Let me take care of it. <laughs> yeah. This is a wonderful way of how you can engage with such a hyper-masculine trope and subvert it in a way that is interesting, in a way that also is not just like simply a political point to be made, but that is also just an interesting twist on the characters, how the way that they are established, it is, I would say, beneficial to the story in more ways than just one. A similar thing applies to Uncharted. I thought about Uncharted for quite a while. Uh, Uncharted is obviously an adaptation of Indiana Jones, where you play Nathan Drake and you're kind of a treasure hunter, a tomb raider, one could say, if that (laughs) association was not more tied to a different game. And the (laughs) thing is that he always is kind of the yeah, he's charming, he's strong, he's, I would say, the contemporary embodiment of a hyper-masculine physique. He's not the doom guy, like an overly buffed, but he's slim, he's well-groomed, for what it's worth, he's trained, he's fit, you know, he's always like a bit witty, a bit chaotic, and he's super powerful in combat. He shoots his way through anything. He can basically survive any situation, whether he's thrown out of a plane, uh, whether he's, uh, I don't know, uh, in a tumbling building. Running through a building. collapsing, yeah. <laughs> yes, especially yeah. running through collapsing buildings. That is a kind of established trope of hypermasculinity. And now, how does Uncharted subvert it? Well, it is not super on the nose, but it starts taking a turn in Uncharted 4, where there is an open discussion that the lady that he most humbly admires, Elena, and wants to be with her, wants to marry her, so fairly conventional, that she actually is getting increasingly upset by the fact that Nathan Drake is always, like, leaving her behind, that he doesn't communicate with her well. And it's not to the degree that she's the annoying one. The game constructed so that he's the annoying one because he just can't get himself together to actually transparently communicate to her. He always thinks he needs to be protective. He needs to be overly protective. So it's good if she doesn't know and it will be fine and he will be back very soon. It's a logic, I think, that applies to many men in daily life that just out of the desire to protect their female partners, they are actually overbearing. They're not respecting the autonomy of their partners. Or, yeah, putting putting them up on a pedestal in a way that, oh, this is something that needs to be protected or needs to be nurtured or cherished when really all she wants is to be let in on what's going on and to be part of his life in a way that he, I don't think he, I don't, th- he's not doing it in a in a way that's hurtful or deliberate. It's just, his assumption is, no, I, I don't worry about it. Uh, this is something that I have to do, which I think falls into maybe a more nuanced hypermasculinity trope of feeling like you have to keep everything bottled in and that it's not your, it's not anyone else's job to help you. But the problem with that is not only does that hurt you when you do that, so, but it's, it's shutting other people out of your life and making them feel lesser. Exactly. By just not considering their wants and their needs. 
that's a very hyper-masculine form of conduct. We also took to Twitter and asked what you would find are interesting examples. And Christina responded, and amongst others, she mentioned The Last of Us. Now, we probably can't go into too much detail as to why that is, but I think it's a good example of how the performance of hypermasculinity fails, how it ultimately leads to the detriment of a character who, well, desperately wants to replace what he has lost. I'm going to keep things vague here. And try to try to play the role of a protective father while again overbearing exactly those that he wanted to protect and basically disrespecting them hurting them in the process and being unable to admit it i think naughty dog has some interesting things to say in this area they seem rather preoccupied with it and it's interesting to think about their their series the jack and daxter series because that's a game series that came out we mentioned the early 2000s when hypermasculinity was all over the place and edginess was also lumped into that hypermasculinity and I, you do kind of get the sense that they're almost commenting on their previous work a little bit because those jack games do not subvert hypermasculine tropes <laughs> they, they lean right into them all the way through but that's an interesting observation because we said at the beginning, in order to subvert hypermasculinity, you need to first construct it. You need to True. understand its workings, and only then you can effectively subvert it. So maybe exactly that experience of Naughty Dog of creating characters for many, many years that reinforce this hypermasculine ideal is exactly what enabled them to deliver a relatively nuanced criticism of it. Well, and we don't have to get too much into this, but I think it's worth mentioning you brought up Kratos earlier, and I think the hypermasculine version of him as the original version through that first those first three mainline games and then in the new god of war series we see that they are commenting on what that caricature of hypermasculinity was and we see him struggling with what it means to be a father and what it means to project these tropes onto your son who's not like you really at all it's it's a really interesting thing that they could not have done had they not done the first few games yeah, that was kind of the huge wave of dad games. Yeah. <laughs> where it was all about, well, what does it mean to be a father? What are the challenges of being a father? Probably developed around a time when many of leading game developers had children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and were thinking, oh, damn, what do I do with this creature that now Life has certain is... expectations of me? <laughs> Life is more nuanced than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's it's an interesting aspect though an interesting phenomenon because it show goes to show that this hypermasculinity that you might have adopted in your teenage years and cultivated in your 20s that it lets you down with an increasing frequency as you turn into your 30s and 40s as you have to take on responsibility serious responsibility as mm -hmm. you have to take the needs and desires and wants of other people into consideration as care becomes something that is a more integral part of your life rather than anger or basically showing off or building up your ego. That reminds me, so Christina also mentioned the Yakuza series, which we've talked yeah. about in a Plus episode. And I think that the Yakuza series is a wonderful deconstruction of hypermasculinity in a lot of different ways. Kazuma Kiryu, the main character for all but one of the games, is a really interesting look at a man who he's he's tall he's silent he's like the old silent hero type he's kind of like clint eastwood he's just this very stereotypical version of a man but then when you get to know him through the game he shows empathy towards people with different interests than him he respects people who kind of follow their own way whatever that might be it's 
it's a very kind look at how masculinity can be used to bolster other people and not take them down. And I think the the culmination of that that's built up when he's literally passed the torch to Kasuga Ichiban in Like a Dragon, very who very deliberately is middle-aged. <laughs> And yeah. his cohort is a bunch of washed out middle-aged people whose real only weapon is kindness and belief in other people. And for a game that I think is about the beauty of masculinity to focus on how being kind to people who are maybe less fortunate than you or seeing the inherent worth in people is a really great subversion from a game that is ostensibly about the Japanese mafia. Yeah, it's in a surprising way because especially since we have Pride Month at the moment, I had to immediately think of the way that queer identities play a role in the Yakuza games. And surely this has changed over time because it's a long-running series. But I also remember that both of the main characters of this series, they are quite, when it comes down to it, they're quite fierce defenders of queer identities. And, yes. Um, very caring and very, yeah, not at all hypermasculine in that sense. I find that, I find it such an interesting phenomenon because for the first two hours when you play a Yakuza game, well, the first two hours you watch a cutscene primarily, <laughs> but then the next two hours, yeah, <laughs> it, it is certainly like you feel for a long time like there's a strong, and maybe there is a consistently strong reliance on hypermasculinity that is sometimes turned up fully so that it goes into the comical degree, like when a character rips their shirt off in order to yeah. fight properly and you see all these muscles and they're like... <laughs> massive tattoos, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to the Japanese mafia. That's, that's exactly how they do it. Yeah. But the thing is that then when you look into more detail, when you do the side quests and when you get to know the characters a bit more, you understand, okay, so there's more depth here than many might anticip have anticipated. In a way, I think that it, it surprises you, but it doesn't take you out of anything because both of them, Kiryu and Ichiban, are unironic examples of what I would consider to be really good men who they, obviously they're in the mafia, so they have some, some issues, but I would say that they're good examples of how classic hero and masculine stereotypes can be used to help people and not just tear them down. Yeah. I totally agree. They carry so much virtue within them. Yes, virtue. Maybe that's the good word for it. Yeah, the, the virtue of, of those characters. I, I want to talk, maybe this is a good segue into another Japanese property. When you brought up this topic, my first thought was of Kanji from Persona 4. Tatsumi yes. Kanji, who, for those familiar with the game, know he struggles with his own uh, sexual identity, really. And I think that as I played it, he reminded me of myself in a lot of ways, not that, so for some context, he's this tough biker kid who the police think, you know, is a troublemaker. And he projects this sense of hyper-masculinity. He wears a leather jacket, you know, he's this tough guy, he's got scars, he's got bleach blonde hair, and he is a loner. And when he meets the, the gang in Persona 4, his sort of mind palace is all about how he thinks he might be gay. And it scares him. And I remember connecting with this character very deeply because I don't know if Kanji's meant to be gay. I don't know if that's the, the there's, ob there's obviously a reading for it there. But what I read from it is, here's a boy who grew up without a father, who doesn't know what masculinity is. So he sticks to those hyper-masculine tropes, but he has these interests, like he sews and he loves, you know, making these little dolls for people. And he, he has these interests in more traditionally feminine qualities. And that comes at odds with his own identity. And so it's really 
if you follow his story to the conclusion, it's about him coming to terms with the fact that it's okay to like what you like and you're still you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. It is this fear, this fear of that anyone could find out that maybe he's not as masculine as he wants to be seen. I found a beautiful quote from mm. Megami Tensei fandom, which is, uh, you know, a fan wiki that includes the Persona characters, where it says, quote, Kanji compensates with a tough, hyper-masculine facade in order to avoid ridicule and rejection by both genders of his peers, as his fellow male peers might interpret his interests as gay, while his female peers might interpret his feminine hobbies as being unmanly, and to avoid such rejection, he hides his interests. End quote. So, so I would read kanji as the sexual orientation. There is a reading there, but it doesn't really make all that much of a difference. The mm. fact of the matter is that he has these interests, he has these passions, he's, he knows that he has a certain feminine side, and he completely overcompensates in order to cover it up. Yeah, but the beautiful thing is that it's a wonderful subversion of that trope, because the way that he accepts that in himself is by being around people who don't ridicule him. He worries that, as you just read, people will think of him a certain way. And he finds that the an the antidote to that is just being around people who accept him. And maybe like Yusuke gives him a hard time every now and again, but it, or uh, Yosuke does, but it's a, uh, it's always ribbing. And it's, it says more about Yosuke than it does about Kanji really. <laughs> so, yeah. It's yeah. also friendship teasing, like a friendly yes. teasing that constantly happens. And that's fine. That's what everyone is exposed to. And I think at the beginning, Kanji, he reacts particularly sensitively to that kind of friend, friendly teasing. Well, yeah. of course, because hypermasculinity is by definition fragile. And, and that's why he is so protective of it. But as he learns to let go and as he learns to trust and to be accepting of others and learn that others can be accepting of him just as much... Yeah. That's kind of a way to come to terms with things. And the, the last really touching thing I want to say about that character is that it's another great example of good habits being passed down. Because if you follow his story, he makes this doll for a young boy who also seems to be going through some of the issues that Kanji is. He's, he's questioning whether he's a man because he likes dolls. And Kanji tells him, tell people to shove it. You like what you like. And it's we all need someone like Kanji in our life to tell us it's okay to be who we are. Yeah, it seems that maybe with Japanese games, mm. there is generally a bit of a different engagement. Not not generally, I shouldn't generalize this as a cultural stereotype, but often JRPGs are a little bit more daring to be playful with the idea of hypermasculinity. And I'm not saying that there are that there's no hypermasculinity in JRPGs. Literally, mm. like I would say like 80 to 85% of protagonists in JRPGs and fighting games are super hyper-masculine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> the thing is, though, that I thought of games such as, I thought of Squall Leonard, I thought of mm. uh, Cloud Strife, and like classic Final Fantasy characters. And a lot of them have a certain, well, either a feminine side to them, or there's a certain playful way, such as the, uh, basically, the is it a drag contest in which Cloud <laughs> can enter? <laughs> it's well it's it's more of kind of it's like a subterfuge i gotta dress up like a girl to save tifa and Aerith. oh yes right <laughs> yeah. that's how it was he needs to dress up as a girl and it's really played up 
in the game and there's also like yeah. a, there's a fantastic dancing sequence in Final Fantasy VII remake. remake yeah fantastic. absolutely absolutely yeah. beautiful and <laughs> it seems to me that this kind of more playful engagement this not taking everything so seriously this playful engagement with stereotypes and with hypermasculinity is a little bit more established and common in uh, Japanese video games I have to tell a quick anecdote when I was playing that dancing sequence in Final Fantasy VII Remake, my girlfriend was sitting on the couch with me and she was sort of half paying attention to the story. And then she saw that and she was she was laughing and we were enjoying it. But then she said something really great at the end of it, which was, I said, well, he didn't practice. I wonder where he learned how to dance. And she said, well, of course he'd be good at dancing. He's a super soldier. So he's, he's, he's really, a, you know, aesthetic and athletic, right? And I said, oh yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it bleeds into different interests. <laughs> <laughs> and they're also like, there's at least, uh, well, let's say two games that I briefly want to mention. Yeah. Mm, well, maybe three. So one of the most established series that plays on the idea of hypermasculinity is Grand Theft Auto, obviously. Oh, boy. oh yeah. <laughs> and GTA V is a game that came to mind. Mark Olette took to Twitter and said GTA Four. We can mention that in a second. But mm. I thought of GTA V first. I thought of Michael DeSanta, who's one of the three protagonists. So basically at the beginning of the game, he fakes his death after a heist gone wrong and he tries to build up a new life in, uh, what is it, Vinewood, I think, right? Like yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood analogy. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, though, his dream was like, okay, so he's retiring from his gangster life and now he can enjoy the time with his family and he can properly live the American dream, which falls apart super fast. His wife is not happy with him. She has an affair with a yoga instructor. <laughs> so this is also part of like the idea of your wife is cheating on you. That is something that's a very common idea to insult the sensitive masculinity of someone because it kind of implies that you are a weak man and there are other like superior men that your wife would rather be with. That's where this kind of pain often comes from or that sting that's part of that insult. And Michael, he basically is exposed to that constantly <laughs> as well as his children. He's got a daughter who's also like pretty promiscuous and partying. And I think he's, she like goes onto some kind of porn boat, porn party boat. <laughs> Whereas his son is like super lazy and doesn't want to do anything. He's like, he's super frustrated with his children. They don't respect him at all. So his idea of hypermasculinity infused by this history of being a gangster is quickly shown to completely fall apart in day-to-day -day life. And what he does is exactly what someone whose hypermasculinity is threatened would do. He lashes out. He breaks things. He yells at his family. He's constantly frustrated. He starts drinking and having violent outbursts, which only makes things worse. So I think GTA 5 is a really interesting example of how hypermasculinity can be subverted. And I think the important thing there too is that that the story that he goes through is one of, re I think, at least the audience, this is what I took from it, realizing that it's not necessarily if the hypermasculinity is falling apart, it's that it was never there to begin with. This ideal, yeah. you know, it was yeah. never real. It was never real. And that realization is the tragedy. Not so much that he's losing something, but more that he's 
becoming aware that he's been a loser his whole life. That's also what leads him to seek therapy and also mm. because it's just like a lifestyle thing that people do apparently in, yeah. in GTA 5. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of commentary there. But this is a theme that Rockstar Games often engages with. We got the tip by Arnold who took to Twitter and referenced Red Dead Redemption, specifically Red Dead Redemption 2, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Now the thing is here I really don't want to say too much because this is a huge uh, spoiler and that's why I'm not going to say too much on the matter. But Red Dead Redemption 2 is one of my favorite games when it comes to deconstructing hypermasculinity, especially because it does so on a narrative level, as in the way it negotiates the choices that the character makes. But even on the gameplay level, it subverts the idea of you as a player slash character player avatar, character avatar, whatever you want to say, gets stronger and more powerful over time. It really subverts that kind of expectation. That's why I love this game so much. I think it's so great. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful example of it in a way that I think when I played it, I wasn't expecting. And I don't know why, but it, it did kind of creep up on me. Yeah, it hits yep. in a way that I have had few games hit me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, just the last a last brief mention here. I also don't want to spoil too much. This is Firewatch. Yeah. Uh, Firewatch is a really wonderful game. And there's even, there's an actual, there's a very well-argued study, an interpretation of Firewatch as a game that negotiates masculinity by Melissa Kagan. It's called Walking, Talking, and Playing with Masculinities in Firewatch. And we'll link that in the show notes. But Firewatch is really about, it's centrally around the subversion of hypermasculinity. Because you've got this kind of character Henry, who very early on, well, let's say he loses his wife under certain circumstances and he goes into the forest to become, well, a a firewatch guard. And the only interaction that he has throughout the summer is with Delilah through a walkie-talkie. So Firewatch has this kind of middle-aged guy who doubtlessly has all these hyper-masculine ideals internalized, just like Michael DeSanta in GTA V. But then he's in the situation that his only weapon here is to communicate. He needs to learn to communicate. He needs to learn to open up. And he needs to learn to deal with pain and frustration in a non-violent way. That he can't he can't be violent, but he also cannot run. He needs to face those problems, but in a way that is a little bit more calm and that is caring and that involves communication. There is, for example, a sequence where he goes down to a river and he finds, like, you know, belongings of some backpackers And he hears music from the distance. As he approaches the shore of a small lake, he sees two young girls swimming in the lake naked. And these girls, and they're like, ah, you're such a creep. And they run out and it's like, ah, he probably got a really small penis. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And like insulting, they, they deliberately insult his masculinity. And all he can do there is, I mean, he can be angry and he can throw their boombox in the water. That's up to you as a player to do. But really, that's that does nothing. The only thing that you can do is stand there and and take this kind of these kind of insults and basically learn to deal with it in some form because you can't just like shoot those teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> a, a different game that would be a very different game, I think. Very different game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would go off the rails very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the best examples in it, and it sounds like that's definitely one of confronting these hypermasculine tropes is acknowledging also that, unfortunately, you can't get away from them. So they're going to be around, and they're going to be in our daily life. I mean, we mentioned up top people like Trump and Putin. They're not 
unfortunately going away anytime soon, right? And so these are things that we have to contend with. And so sometimes the best thing that you can do is internalize it and process it and try to come out on the other end so that it doesn't affect you in a way that it may have before that experience. Yeah. And you know what? It's really a process. Mm. <laughs> the thing is, I mean, I assume that the two of us, Dan, we have been socialized into roles of masculinity, into mm -hmm. certain uh, stereotypes of what it means to be a man in this world. It is a man's world. But, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, though, that if you are socialized in that role, which is a profoundly privileged role in our society, there are still some struggles and some problems that you encounter over time that challenge your idea of masculinity. Quite possibly even because you might not even identify as masculine in the sense that everyone else wants you to identify with. But I also want to say that it's a, it is always a matter of practicing. Practicing virtues, learning about yourself and reflecting upon your own cognitions, emotions and behavior. And games can be a very helpful tool in order to do that, especially those games that do portray hypermasculinity in some way and then pull the rug from under our feet to bring us even into a short moment of reflection where we might think, oh, okay, so things can go really differently or they can go really terribly if you go further down this path. I'd like to, I'd like to end with a personal anecdote because I think we mentioned up top these are things that we've contended with, and we've, we've given some good examples of personal things here. But I think as we're recording this, the Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core has just been announced to get a remaster. And I would say that that's maybe my favorite game of all time. And it's because of the... Really? Yes. And it's because Wonderful. of the depiction of Zach Fair, the main character. And what I love about him is that he's he is hyper-masculine in the sense that he's very strong. He carries the Buster Sword, which is a ridiculous weapon. But he's also funny. And he's real and empathetic. And that game came out at a time when I lost my grandfather. And I remember halfway through the game, Zach loses someone. And it did something that no game I've ever played has done, which is it shows a scene of Zach crying and dealing with this loss in a very human way and taking comfort from Aerith, his partner, and just working through it in a way that's healthy and in a in a world of men pushing things down and trying to be like the the hypermasculine hero, I think that Zach Fair is more of a hero than any of those characters. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Next week, we actually have a special episode. We're going to do a cooperation with the Ethics and Video Games podcast. That means Shlomo Sher and Andy Ashcraft. Shlomo Sher is a professor for video game ethics and Andy Ashcraft, a long-term veteran video game designer. And we're going to talk to them about video game piracy and the ethics thereof. Please look forward to that. Thank you so very much for listening. Kind regards, by the way, to Richard Mertens, who edits our show at the moment. Thoughts and questions. If you have any, you can always submit them to studyingpixels.com slash contact. And of course, we'll talk again next week. See you then, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.